Wednesday night edition of the pod. We got plenty more of your questions to get to today. Before we get started, though, I want to thank you, number one, for listening, for continuing to support us during this time. And number two, encourage you to listen to COVID Daily News, which for those of you who haven't listened yet, we're trying to get you in a concentrated form about 30 minutes or so. Me and Ben Taylor, the real need to know information that's most important to seeing how this is going to play out over the next however many months and then let you chill out and go about your day afterwards so encourage you to give a listen to that even if you're not inclined to consume anything more about the coronavirus this is actually a way for you to reduce your consumption is the idea but we got some really nice uh, reviews uh, as well which i've been tweeting about nate silver even gave us an endorsement over the weekend for danny's part he just came out with a piece looking at the rocket salary cap future at least uh, part one of that uh, with kelly eco so you can check that out as well theathletic.com slash cap space you can sign up there so mr larue where would you like to continue after we did part one of this yesterday uh let's go to brooklyn with this question from derek blitzky darren blitzky sorry uh do the nets need to trade spencer dinwiddie or karis lovert and if so which would you keep need to me is too strong a word I, but I do think that when you put together the concept of what the Nets rotation is going to look like when they're full strength, hopefully that happens. Hopefully that happens as soon as reasonably possible. I just don't think there is as much for Karis Levert to do. I think you want somebody who's less ball dominant, who's better as a defender because Kyrie and Kevin Durant are going to be your linchpins on that end of the floor. Lower usage, ideally higher efficiency, but also better defensively. And if a team really likes Karis LeVert for, you know, that, that, that is a better suited for it, I would absolutely listen to offers. And then you've talked well about the, the connection with Dinwiddie and Kyrie Irving and all that, but also teams just need more depth at guard positions. Dinwiddie, I think is a more natural fit for second unit. So my read would be they don't need to trade either, but they should seriously consider trading over. Yeah, need is always uh, tough, but it, uh, of course, depends on what the return is. But Levert, I think for, I'll echo all the reasons that you had. And then I would also add as well the fact that he's starting a three-year extension for around $52 million after this year. Dinwiddie only has one year left on his contract after this. uh, And the interpersonal aspect as well, where Dinwiddie recruited Kyrie, wouldn't make much sense to move Dinwiddie from a personal standpoint. And they do need more defensively they got between Dinwiddie Irving and Durant they got plenty of shot creation they don't really need much more of that they need more defense particularly on the wings if they're going to be taken seriously and so uh, that would be the goal now if you can't get that maybe it's not worth trading Levert but the other thing to remember about Levert too is his overall numbers although he had some big games late before the hiatus very poor uh, this year and yeah, he had that issue with his hand where he, he didn't play for a time, but we thought that was a pretty cheap deal for him in the summer. He didn't play all that well this year, and so I think he's still, there's a thought that he could be a star shot creator for some people. That skill doesn't really help the Nets that much, but you could also run into the situation where A, because he just may not be that good, and B, because he's not going to have many chances to perform at a high usage level on next year's Nets that you want to move him before that happens and reduces his value. Let's go to stay in the greater New York area question from Ryan T. What is the key difference between a successful rebuild and one that yields, well, the New York Knicks? The basic one, I mean, if you want to say this, is 
elite talent. I mean, the easiest way out is not being necessarily being a well-run team or having, you know, doing everything right. It's getting that star talent. I mean, I, I've been very critical of how New Orleans ran their shop while they had Anthony Davis, but they still won a playoff series, made the playoffs twice during that time, and they should have done more. But outside of that, I, I, I mean, so if we're kind of taking that as a given, a couple of big elements for me. One is knowing where you are and not rushing. Again, the Pelicans are a great example here. They pushed too early for Davis, and that created two problems. One, actually three. So first, they never, they didn't get to build up the war chest. They got a little bit too good too quickly, so then they couldn't they couldn't add it. They also spent salary cap space on a lot of that, like when they had to re-sign Omar Ashik, and they gave up draft capital in order to add Drew Holiday and to add Ashik. So it made it harder to do that. So generally, unless you're closer, teams that jump that jump the gun, that is a, a big problem that leads to unsuccessful rebuilds. So successful ones are typically more gradual. Yeah, clearly lottery luck is is number one, right? I, I know you hit on that, but just to underscore the point, and you got to draft the right people, obviously, at, at that point too. I mean, hitting on your draft picks wherever they are is probably number two. I would actually say the lottery luck is probably a bigger deal than actually... Memphis, Memphis is a great average. example of that. Yeah, yeah, Memphis. So you get Jaron Jackson instead of Kevin Knox, and you get John Morant instead of R.J. Barrett. Well, there, that's your number one reason why Memphis is ahead. And yeah, you could say Memphis has done a better job of rebuilding as well. And they didn't sign players. Instead, they tried to use uh, that trade exception. They got a, a first-round pick uh, for taking on Iguodala, et cetera. They, they did a better job of managing it. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, number one, being realistic is just lottery luck, right? The Suns. Now, now the Suns had lottery luck and they blew it. They drafted DeAndre Ayton and the Kings had lottery luck and they blew it and they drafted Marvin Bagley instead of Luka Doncic. You know, that that matters too, but you got to at least get the lottery luck before you can get the guy in a lot of cases. And then I'll echo what you said uh, about uh, the lack of patience as well. Let's go to another one here. Wes George, if they did a 2019 redraft today, would the Pels consider John Morant over Zion Williamson given Morant's performance and Zion's injury concerns moving forward what do you think i think they would consider it i mean it isn't it isn't a complete no-brainer because of the aforementioned injury concerns i mean there is a a chance that zion's career is shorter or that it just doesn't it doesn't doesn't reach the same heights because of the because of the injury issues and i mean it's the strain that he puts on his joints in particular with how large he is and how bouncy he is you know like that the analogy that i've made for a little while now is tim linscombe where i mean he was close to being pitcher for the giants and grew up in the barrier it's like he kind of his body kind of defied kinesiology and it was surprising how well he did for how long and then at a certain point it just gave up and i hope that doesn't happen with zion but it certainly could however i still think they would make the same decision because as as much as i and i don't i'm not at the same level of jaw appreciation as you are but though we're not too far apart zion has significantly more mvp upside like that just can't stop him element that is really what championship teams are made of what elite teams are made of and it's not a an a all or nothing proposition partially because jaw has some of that potential as well and because it's not a certainty for zion it's just a, po- a distinct possibility but generally speaking if a player has a material chance of making it to that kind of rarefied air i'm gonna roll the dice on them yeah i'm in agreement i think the the window has closed mostly due to zion's health issues but also because he looked so terrible defensively when he was out there now on the other hand you can say well there's no guarantee he was going to look this awesome 
offensively and yeah he's every bit what you would have hoped and he still has some ceiling to get back to where he was physically before that knee surgery so it is definitely worth thinking about but ultimately how many players six two and under have ever been a top five player in the nba you really i mean steph curry certainly is there chris paul is there and that might be the list frankly i mean who else can you think of in history who is a top five player in the nba at that height you know maybe tiny archibald when he seems to have to go back and really look at the early 70s when he led the league in scoring and assists but if he did have that it didn't last long Isaiah Thomas, I don't think, was ever even close to being a top five player in the NBA, even if you go back to what people thought at the time. John Stockton, same thing. I'm pulling who, up who I'm pulling up anybody? the top I'm pulling up the top PER seasons um of players who had players who were six two and under. Chris Paul has seven of the top nine seasons and eight of the top eleven. That's incredible. Um Iverson. Yeah, okay, that that would be another one. Uh, uh, Lillard is listed at six two, and maybe yeah, I would. I don't think he's don't ever think been he a top five player. Jerry West. Yeah, I mean that that was a different. I mean Jerry West totally was like you know that he was kind of the equivalent of like a six five guy today. True. Yeah, but really, yeah, and Stockton would be some would argue would argue that. Um, but yeah, and and well, Rose was listed at six two and one MVP. Okay, yeah, that's that would be that would maybe be the other one. Maybe you could say Westbrook was on the cusp of that. Um, but it, yeah, and Zion is just the numbers that he put up as a 19 year old, even in, in that limited standpoint. Well, and, uh, and there's an argument to be amazing. made that the landscape is more conducive to small players being that elite player than has been than it has been at any point in modern NBA history. Absolutely. But, but there's a big difference between that theoretically and it actually happening. So, do you want to roll the dice that you know where history, you know where this is evolving, and you know where that's going? And also remember, like, yeah, I mean, certain elements of this offensively, what you know, like we could say the Warriors, but generally where the league has been going since seven seconds or less, Suns is going to continue. But also, some elements of it are going to change as the you know there aren't teams like the Warriors now, and so maybe some of the elements of this tone back a little bit or something else. So we'll, we'll see. But yeah, I. I, yeah. Ja also has a, has probably uh, a reasonable injury risk as well. Absolutely. With his style. Yeah, I think that's I, it's really good to bring that up. And just because it is a comparative advantage does not mean it is in like a definitive one. You know, like a, it may mean that his risk is is zero. But yeah, I would. So you agree with me that they would they would pick Zion, but it would be it would be a closer call, I would say, than it would have been back in June of 2019. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the biggest way that Ja would turn out to be better than Zion not related to injuries is if zion just is terrible defensively and just never improves which i, I think is a possibility he is really bad uh, that first one i thought he was even his college performance that a lot of people liked i, I thought that that was overrated in, in many respects so uh that's the way to where you're just like hey man we could never win a championship with this guy because he's one of our two bigs and he's just so bad defensive we just can't get our defense to where it needs to be um i'm not saying that's going to happen but i think it's it's a possibility We'll do this one from at Studebaking. If you were the NBA Players Union and agents, what concession would you demand from owners in exchange for giving up the standardized medical records for all draft day prospects? And I, it would take something massive, and it would probably, honestly, it would be percentage points of BRI. That's how big of an issue this is to me. And Wow, why, why is it so big to you? Because they've already conceded the rookie scale. And so these players, the prospects that are coming in, are already some of the most disadvantaged. Or one other way would be to strengthen the rookie scale. I guess that would be because you want something that concentrated it. And it's one of the only elements of control that these agents and players, prospects, have in the entire process. 
and yeah not only the rookie scale but just like the idea of getting drafted and not getting to pick where you're going to go work to begin with yeah i mean the the nba deliberately has this structure which takes away a lot of control and then gives gives bad teams and bad organizations the 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 voice of the process and it's really the only thing other than i guess you could argue like showing up for workouts that and remember that's something else that the uh the league is trying to fight for in this is mandatory mandatory participation that's to some extent in the combine and i would fight i would fight hard for hard hard against it because they're also you know thinking of an equivalent thing you know that they're trying to argue that in the current negotiations it sounds like the contours are that they're trying to make this a you know a concession that the players get to get the age limit thing which is completely ludicrous because that isn't a you know that isn't a player concession that's just it's something that they think is right and it's 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 not dirty pool it's just a weird way to negotiate to say hey give us this awesome thing in exchange for something that isn't really to your benefit but i i would i think it for me it's more of a moral thing than like an you know there's the whole like give get guard theory of negotiation a whole lot of other stuff but it's not as valuable from that standpoint but when you consider the relative power of potential draftees that's what makes me fight harder for it i've always felt like uh, there's this very mild civil disobedience of not giving certain teams your medical records i don't understand why players don't just pull a steve francis i mean worked for him right i mean I, it's of just saying hey i'm, I'm not gonna play there like i don't want to play for your organization and you know you can maybe tell them that specifically maybe you don't go public with it at first but and steve francis didn't suffer from doing that why not just say that hey i, I don't want to go play for this particular team and you know that's really kind of to me it's up to the draftees to take that like the not giving the medical records is kind of a have your cake and eat it too where you don't have to have any negative publicity which i don't honestly don't even think would be that bad at this point but you don't have to have any negative publicity for saying i don't want to play somewhere and yet also not have to play there and so i, I wouldn't go as high as percentage points uh, of bri i i mean i would i i definitely support the players association saying we're not going to cave in on this now unless we get something and you're this idea that uh, i echo your thoughts on that this idea that hey you guys give something up so you can have this that the owners actually seem to be ironically the ones pushing harder for at this point maybe there would have been a point in past years where the players wanted it more than the owners but that's uh, no longer the case now so what would i ask for not much i think ultimately it's a it's an ancillary issue and and the players if they want to and they really just don't want to play somewhere that badly they can just say that and they have other ways uh, of gaining leverage other than what we're talking about here so i think even like a pretty modest concession would be enough for me ultimately but do you do you think teams would actually respect that like if, if that's if we let's say we go to the system that you're that you're thinking of and the teams have the full medical records they can watch all the film do you think a don't draft me would actually happen i mean there are there's stuff about steph curry not wanting to go to the warriors and they still drafted him well yeah but he and and they did he didn't work out for them etc but he also like still showed up and played yeah no but what i'm saying is if the, if, if a player if they truly you know in those one in a hundred opportunities where they absolutely do not want to play for this organization it's not posturing it's not anything else it's doing anything like that if the, do you think that would actually dissuade teams from drafting them i don't think it would well it's not them saying i don't want to play for you it's saying i won't play for you so then they have to actually do it if the team drafts them yeah someone would have to that's true but it the situation would get resolved pretty quick i think if you really just didn't show up you know and maybe you would run into a situation 
situation where a team would be like no way we can't relent on this but I, I mean teams have pretty much always relented right like the baltimore colts relented on john elway the vancouver grizzlies relented on steve francis we've never seen a player uh the the bo jackson uh yeah the san diego chargers relented on eli manning so we've never seen that i'm aware of uh, at least with a high profile player that not working but maybe the thought is well you want to if you're gonna be you know a shea gill just alexander or maybe you don't have that level of leverage you know like zion williamson could easily have, have pulled that off i think right uh you know unless there became some intervention from the commissioner's office or something like that but uh you know shea gill just alexander didn't want to work out for cleveland right and didn't send him the or send them the medicals so maybe someone like that you still want the ability in the mid round to, to steer it and you don't necessarily have the leverage to be like okay i'm not going to play there so i i'm sensitive to that but ultimately i think a pretty modest concession i'd have to think more about what that is i i didn't come up with anything as i was thinking about it just now but um, um n- well, we, not we, nearly as large as what you're talking about though in my opinion let, let's go to this question from patrick o'halloran uh, do you think that there is any hope for the clippers to capture the city of los angeles basically running through all the stuff um do whatever bomber does it won't matter what do you think i i rely a lot on the four years that i lived in los angeles for this and that was while the lakers were significantly better than the clippers that was donald sterling was still the was still the owner of the Clippers at that point. Uh, the the Lakers were coming off of the the second three peat, I believe. No, the coming off the first one, then was before the second one, and or before the shit, but the Kobe Powell two peat. And I think that I so I've been interested in this for a long time because I lived down there and I wondered, you know, like if the Lakers were poorly run and the Clippers were were well run, what would happen? And generally speaking, my answer is the Lakers have that town. Like, that's just the way it works. The fortunate thing for the Clippers is that, A, the NBA is a very global sport now, and there are so many people in Los Angeles that even being the second most popular team in your sport in that city will not be a problem in terms of revenue. So they'll sell, they could sell out their arena, they can sell plenty of merchandise, they can get a great regional sports TV contract, but it would take, it would take something that is almost inconceivable to me to have it be that way, because we already saw the Lakers be truly terrible for a long stretch and it didn't really impact it very much at all and the Clippers being the Clippers during a lot of that time they didn't win a championship or anything but they were much better than the Lakers were so that's my general theory yeah they're also owned by Donald Sterling that time I, I want to I'm trying to think back at historical examples of when a town really shifted Chicago always been a Cubs town over the Sox neither and, of those and like even the White, White Sox won a World Series that. before the Cubs did and I don't think it yeah. changed it changed that too much no uh i mean basketball there aren't too many examples of, of two city towns i mean clearly you know the the knicks and nets hasn't changed that but the nets you know were in new jersey and then they're in brooklyn and they didn't have much of a sustained period of success either and it's also the, it's also the nature other. of fandom i mean a lot of times it can be passed down from your parents there are also a lot of transplants and so i don't know how many people change their like of the people who allegiance matters how many of them change their allegiance during their lifetime so then if then if, if it's more the idea of you know the that changing the fandom then it requires i think it requires generational change like it requires having young kids that grew up and like the clippers were way better than the lakers and then they choose themselves to do it 
The only example I can think of was that the Mets in the 80s were definitely like outdrawing and I would assume outrating on TV. The Yankees, the Mets won the 86 World Series. They had pretty good teams in the mid 80s. The Yankees, after 1981, they had a, a long stretch where they didn't make it back to the postseason until 1995. Although they had some good teams during the 80s, but they never actually made it into the postseason. So I, I think there was a point at which you could argue the Mets were a bigger deal than the Yankees, but that shifted back as soon as the Yankees got good again and so I think you really would need I mean the reason that it's the way it is right now in LA well LA has been there the Lakers that were there since 1959 they're the best or the second best team basically that entire time Clips moved there in 1984 and they're owned by Donald Sterling for 30 years (laughs) so so and you know never have still never made a conference finals and so maybe if they won a championship that could be the start of it but the Lakers are back to being good again as well now and so i think you really um so what would it take to change it i don't know maybe 30 years of sustained clippers success and lakers ineptitude yeah i I mean that's what you you take the set of conditions that seeded where we are now and reverse them and maybe you get back maybe you get to that point maybe but then you still have all the generations of people that are diehard laker fans that it would it would i mean donald sterling is such an extreme example because then you could really change the dynamic and have people that just don't want to be a fan of that team but hopefully here's hoping for for everyone's sake that the lakers never yeah never get to that point i i don't think people weren't fans of the clippers because of donald sterling's like being uh abhorrent personally i think it's just i, I think some of that but he was also an, he, he was, was also an abhorrent owner i mean yeah, yeah. so i mean that those those two things can be separate or can be connected because they they if they did relate to how he how he treated the team you know from from a lot of different perspectives oh you do this one from from colonel cactus do you trust nba owners to make wise decisions about resuming basketball i am genuinely concerned about this it is you know we're, we're going to be running into this throughout i don't want to get overly political at least right here with the friction between revenue maximization and human viability maximization but so individually i i I would have some concerns like if the process were in the hands of one or two people but the league has i think the league has pretty strong stewardship overall and when you combine all the owners together you put silver and then the players association of course will have a big voice in this process i'm more confident than i would be if it were a smaller number of voices yeah and of course with 30 teams you're you've got 30 locales and varying situations in those locales varying government authorities uh, to deal with so really i think it'll be more about just what governments allow when you're talking about actually having fans back in arenas again than what owners want to do now when you're talking about resuming basketball with no fans and owners making wise decisions uh, the criteria for what are wise decisions uh, comes uh, a lot more into focus uh, because you've got largely at least in terms of the players a lower risk population you you can make an argument that those players uh, aren't facing as much of a problem if they were to get infected but you've got support staff you've got players families but i i think it's really to say that it's just nba owners making the decisions is probably reductive even for discussing the idea of playing without fans because the players coaches support staff and they're all going to be making the decisions as well the players have to agree to this right they cannot be forced under the current elective uh, collective bargaining agreement to do it with some plan that the owners come up with or to have to quarantine and not see your families etc etc so i'm any business you're obviously skeptical but i think they're also now 
limited by the fear of trying to restart again and then having something happen where they have to stop as well i think they are gonna have to have a very high degree of confidence and all of the all of the teams all of the players and there's almost going to be a lowest common denominator in terms of whoever is the most fearful of restarting due to the virus like their concerns are going to take precedence because you need so many stakeholders to buy in to be able to do this so i have a reasonable degree of confidence that you know not necessarily an nba owners but just the league itself uh, adam silver the players everyone that if they do restart they're going to do it in the way that is most calculated to make everyone safe and that it's possible that they maybe even don't resume until we just have a more global reopening of society and they're also obviously very concerned about pr and having enough testing and stuff for society as a whole so i i'm not that worried that there's gonna be like they're gonna do it they're gonna do it incredibly sloppily and it's gonna be a disaster that it could happen just due to the nature of this virus that you do everything you possibly can and you still end up having some infections but i i think and it may as they really go through the process they may come to the conclusion that it's just not possible to do it safely uh but i don't think that they're particularly like oh man nba owners they're just gonna try to make a buck they're gonna reopen in some totally unsafe manner i don't believe that that's what's gonna happen let's go this question from Daco carter a longtime friend of, of the pod what do you envision and hope for the future of the g league what do you actually expect will be the future of the g league i'll start with the second one i think we're getting a lot closer to that with the jalen green announcement that you know basically that they're adding this kind of barnstorming e team and that piece was was something that i had wondered about because the the easy kind of affiliate model that really does feel like it's part of the at least for the near term but probably a part of the like current end game of it's a kind of like a hybrid system so it's not a full minor league like you could think of what baseball is where filter through the organization the team has full control over every player who is on their minor league team because that's too much money for the for the NBA teams to outlay and it's too much control for the amount of money that the the players are getting paid I mean, you could think of the idea like Kendrick Nunn played on the Warriors G League team before the Heat signed him and if there were a system where even players like Kendrick Nunn were under were under control of their major club that whole time and you know like like kind of like two-way players which they've given up a lot of control i i think that it would be an it would be an impractical system that means that the the flex points are one the but well, well can, can i talk with sure, uh, about that idea the idea of the players being under control i think we haven't seen this play out yet i'm sure because of the hiatus but the g league players have voted to unionize and so now yes. There will be collective bargaining. And in some of the people that I talked to at the G League Showcase, they thought, what would that process look like? What it might look like is because you think okay what did g league players have to trade right they don't have a lot of leverage well the thought was the only thing that they have to trade to get paid more is allowing teams more control over in that kendrick nunn type of situation that you talked about where yeah maybe you're not on a two-way contract necessarily but maybe even just for the duration of one season once you're on a g league team you're going to get paid more but then that team has the exclusive rights to bring you up through that season something along those lines that that collective bargaining process could could lead to something like that because that's all the the leverage that those G League players have. Yeah, that's a totally that's a totally fair point and the unionization element of this is is worth talking about. And 
my thought is that that teams, at least in the current paradigm, will use the G League. I, maybe more teams will move something closer to Miami. I don't think anybody can necessarily replicate what the Sioux Falls Sky Force and the Miami Heat have done. But having it be a place where they can, you can both identify and develop players and get them ready, ideally for for NBA service when they're good enough, and not everybody will be. And that is a you know it, 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 a way of doing it. There will also always be the element of you know giving young players reps. I mean that was one of the early ways that the G League was used, and one of the ways that I think it will continue. So if it's a a talented young player who for whatever reason you'd rather have getting time in the G League, and the other benefit is when you see G League teams like the South Bay Lakers are a good example. Of this there are a lot of them around the league where the the G League team is close enough to the NBA team that they can maintain contact in both directions. I think that is another another big benefit, and I think we're seeing things largely move in that direction though obviously not uniformly did you mention just having 30 teams that that was kind of yeah that that is a, basically a, a mandatory part of my vision i didn't mention it explicitly so thank you for bringing it up um as far as what i would like i've mentioned this before with hollinger that i think there should be fewer games in the g league space out a, little bit, a little bit more less travel let players just work on their games a little more emphasize the development aspect of it a little bit more i, I think that would make more sense especially players being able to work on their bodies when you're doing this much travel i think becomes difficult um yeah i would like to see salaries come up to the point where it's a little bit more of a living wage than you know thirty thousand dollars a year or something like that but not that much more for a lot of these players because you're really you know they're the economics have to kick in at some point like they're not the g league loses money yeah the the the, i've said before that i think there is a theory of how the u.s could have the second best basketball league in the world but it's not going to be the g league because there isn't the revenue the revenue necessary to get the salaries there and so you can't pay the players you know like everybody five hundred thousand dollars or four hundred thousand dollars because people aren't watching the games enough to generate the tv contract to pay those salaries all right how about this uh from squirrelins noel how good is shea gilgis alexander and if you're sam presti how are you approaching next season uh i think Shea Gilgis Alexander has a ceiling of being an all-star a few times. I don't think of him as necessarily the next potential superstar. I'm not sure that he's explosive enough there. He doesn't have that one skill that really pops out to me as like, all right, this is what's going to make him totally unstoppable. So I I think he's a, a nice piece you know, if I had to think of a, you know, I, I think of him as kind of more on like, you know, the Mike Conley path than the like many times all-star path, but th- that's obviously a very good player and, but they need much more. And so seeing what happens in the playoffs. Oh, by the way, quick aside, we totally screwed up yesterday when we were gaming out the playoffs in forgetting that there probably isn't going to be a home court advantage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. In the bubble, um, the bubble theory. Yeah, th- thanks to Francis Mack for pointing that out. Although I'm sure many people were thinking it at the same time, and we were just—I uh, was just—we like, we can't oh, we this- can't take our NBA analyst hats off for that long. We just have to, you know, we just have to think of it as it as it were. Yeah, that's it's a great point though. Uh, in any event, but. I think if I'm Presti, I would try to re-sign Danilo Gallinari to a contract that could be movable. I would probably try to move Chris Paul as well. If you can't do that, you can just soldier on in the next season. They have a bunch of draft picks that are not their own. 
But you just have to be realistic about the fact that really your only long-term piece on this team right now is Shea Gilgis-Alexander and you have to come up with, uh, it's going to be a longer-term rebuild and they're at least, you know, not experiencing as much pain as we thought they would here. But, and you don't want to just kick away a playoff team for no reason unless you're getting something for it. But I think you always have to remember that the end game is having to get a lot more good young players on your roster than you already have. Yep, I think I think that's a, a healthy perspective. Got a question from VVV and then a whole bunch of numbers. Can the Jazz make a deal for Drew Holiday? What do the Pelicans do with Derek Favors? Since those are both Pelicans-related questions, I think we can kind of answer them together. I don't think, you know, assuming they're not going to trade their, their centerpiece type of guys, I don't think the Jazz have the right pieces that New Orleans would be looking for for Drew Holiday. Joe Ingles... A little bit too old. They do, you know, having more wings would help. Royce O'Neal, I like a lot, but again, you need you need other things around Zion and theoretically, let's say Brandon Ingram's a part of their core. And the Jazz are not an asset-rich team. They don't have these blue chip resources in terms of draft picks or really talented young players. You know, like the type of guys. You know, maybe maybe Dante Exum was here a couple of years ago, where you could expect that they will blossom somewhere else. So I don't think that's a, there's a realistic scenario there. And Drew Holiday's absolutely a positive value contract so it's not like they would just try to get off the money that that drew was owed uh pelicans with favors to me is a more a more challenging proposition you and i talked about fred van vliet on yesterday's mailbag pod and i think the answer might be somewhat similar which is that new orleans has a lot of uncertainty in terms of their future you know who who's going to fit in and so that means giving Derek favors long-term money is a lot less palatable than giving him significantly more money in the short term and there was plenty of reason to believe that if this season had continued unabated that the pelicans would have made the playoffs and when you think about that they didn't have their full complement for the whole year that we would be thinking about differently maybe david griffin and ownership would be and so to me you t- while that didn't happen because the season didn't happen in the same way I think if you could get favors for a lot of money on like a one or a two year deal, ideally a one year deal, I would seriously consider doing it. And I don't think favors is going to have significantly better options now that his hometown Atlanta Hawks basically said we'd rather have Clint Capella and Dwayne Dedman than you. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense uh, on favors. I was going to say the same thing if you hadn't gotten to it and with drew also ending in theory in 2021 he's got that player option for the following season 21 22 at 27 million but assuming you are going to want to opt out to that they could think about potentially extending him if he doesn't do that you've tried to make the playoffs tried to see whether you're on a path with like a real contender maybe Williamson and Ingram take like such major steps forward next year that you're really getting into being a very good team in the West a 50 win type of team and you continue down that path or you say hey you know what we're not really close to getting into the elite in the West with this group it's going to be a longer term build let's throttle it down a little bit and try to pick up some more pieces you get an idea of say how a Nikhil Alexander Walker or Jackson Hayes are developing as well but they've got basically about 20 million dollars in room below the tax once ingram signs a max and so that should in theory be enough to bring back favors and you'd hope that that could be better than what they would be getting with the the mid-level exception 
let's bring back now the true lightning round here since we still have a ton of other questions to get to and we've got uh, about 15 minutes or so left so 30 seconds on the clock here i'll start us off nick pinto asks will DeAnthony melton have a better career than avery bradley my guess would be probably not bradley made himself into a near 40 percent three-point shooter melton good defensive player off the ball but not the difference maker that bradley was and perhaps even is on the ball bradley had a career with you know four or five years as playing as a very solid starter and i would bet melton would be a little bit lower i still see him as kind of more of a rotation guy bradley might have been a little bit overrated but in terms of the shooting and the on-ball defense i don't see melton getting to quite that level you can argue that he might be a little bit better off the dribble and as a team defender than bradley though from option zero for entertainment or content purposes who would you like to see coach the nets kid thibodeau jackson devane gundy's and who has the biggest disaster potential i want to see the the nets be well coached that would be far better than having them be poorly coached as much as you and i can get into the oh my god wouldn't this be so much better i'm so much happier talking about the bucks now than i was when jason kidd was their coach so for content purposes i would rather have it be somebody good Stan Van gundy's a, a reasonable option there you could whoever you think is a, is a good coach uh d- greatest disaster potential my instinct is is kid just because i think he's the worst coach of that group and i could see that being a problem but the specific motivation style for for mark jackson as somebody who covered those teams like i could imagine that especially with kd and Kyrie, that it could work but it could also just be an absolute disaster and that they could like that jackson could 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 lead to that sort of mutiny he had the allegiance of a lot of the key warriors but it would be a very different situation because these net stars know who they are already they're not where the warriors guys were then yeah jackson for comedy for actual entertainment value mike d'antoni yes that'd be d'antoni be really fun uh eric sar asks you go back and do draft scouting Kawhi, pg or Giannis. do you see big things that were missed or are they most just mostly just great player development stories well for Kawhi, it was his shooting ability that really uh, was missed, I think, um, that he would develop that way as a shooter. You know, that's one of the higher outcomes that, that you would have. Giannis, he grew like three inches that's something that we didn't know was going to happen i think that was important he was only like six eight six nine when he was in the draft process he did it still have that that crazy length i think i just didn't see that his athleticism was going to develop to the level that it did uh, and paul george i didn't really watch tape him when he was younger but i think the big issue for him was that he didn't he kind of coasted and didn't really have the desire to be great and he developed more as a shooter than i think a lot of people thought that he would too and a, a dribbler and passer even i think he, he was very very raw uh you know the thought is he was one of these guys who just has the measurables and it doesn't have the feel for the game which turned out to not be true defensively as well and i think just his passion and how hard he worked i think that's another thing where scouts actually aren't that great at that a lot of times when you think of people like rudy gobert for supposedly it was like another guy who didn't work hard enough yeah that that that's a really good point so we got a couple questions on um on basically the scotty pippen contract which we did talk about on the uh monday night tuesday morning dunked on when we talked about the last dance and you know like what would what would your argument be is there anything close to that value and so just as because i looked it up uh 18 million in in 
$91 would be, and obviously it's not the same because it's the, the thing that goes in. That'd be about a, it'd be about a $34 million contract now if you want to, I mean, the league was different, but just in terms of pure inflation, that's where the numbers would be. And to me, what I was thinking about like the best value contracts of the modern era, and I'm excluding rookie scale because now the rookie scale exists. That's, you know, that's, specifically limited the one that i thought of was the steph curry contract so curry signed that extension with the warriors the numbers off the top of my head is four years 52 i I used to know it off the like for sure but i think it was something in that range steph no four four years 44 444 okay and he won two mvps during that time and was you know was an integral part of, of championship teams lebron you know lebron's peak i would say was was higher but he's been a max player for such a long time that of this current vintage that curry contract of of non rookie scale was the was the best value but what makes the scotty pippen contract so different this is something we got into in the last dance pod was the length i mean that curry curry contract wasn't even close to to seven years seven years is just such an astonishing amount of time when even even though basketball careers can be pretty long like it just covers such a large portion of it and you know scotty pippen played in college it wasn't like he was coming in at 16 or something pace and space of the available backup center options around the league and the draft who could help utah immediately but also for the least amount of money and i think they might feel okay with tony bradley i want to see what he does in the playoffs theoretically but you're talking about pretty low numbers you know three four million dollars a year i don't know that there's a massive upgrade on what tony bradley is giving them there you know maybe a harry giles is someone that they would like but i the thing i like for them is or or maybe nerland's noel is someone they could look at someone who can just allow them to play the same way with all the pick and rolls and finish above the rim in pick and roll do this one from brandon goldner have you found that your work circadian rhythm has been thrown off with the sudden cancellation or we'll say hiatus of the season like you're just gearing up for increased fan interest in the playoffs instead we have nothing to watch is that weird yes very very much so i mean what has been the biggest adjustment beyond all of the other adjustments for me is that i used to build my entire day around making sure that i could watch games from we're pacific time from four pacific to let's say 10 pacific and whether we were recording a pod afterwards or not and not that it was rigidly every day except when we're in the playoffs but that is how i think about my life from october let's say october 1st to july 1st or you know the end of the end of the the end of the finals and we're right in that time you know this would we would be in the the first week of the playoffs right now and my brain a lot of times is still thinking of that as the default and that has been a real change but you know you deal with it as an understandable consequence of this but yeah it's totally thrown off I'm generally pretty adaptable. So this is like my new normal. I like can't even imagine going back to the way it used to be right now. And I, I've also just thrown myself into this coronavirus podcast, which I'm spending you know as much time on as basketball, if not more now, especially because it's a new subject matter to me. And I really, really am concerned about getting things right there. So uh, no, I, I'm, uh, everything's totally different. Uh, other than I still get up at like 9.30 and I still go to bed at 1.30. I'm still on the, uh, on NBA time. But uh, other than that, um no it's totally different for me not not a welcome change obviously all right let's do uh two more each year who are some good second draft players that you would be buying low on i was thinking we could do an entire pot segment on this at some point actually yeah all right let's let's save it for later then that's a good idea um is dame willard a top five shooter of all time that's an interesting one he doesn't have a lot of versatility to the way that he gets his shots i mean you'd have to say you know steph curry ray allen clay thompson reggie miller 
I don't think he's on that level. He's really awesome at pulling up for deep threes off the dribble. And maybe the part of this is because he hasn't had the pieces around, but he's not doing a lot of work off ball. He doesn't have that like that kind of off ball gravity. I think he's only had a couple of seasons where he's gotten close to 40%. I mean, to me, you got to be over 40% for three. I realize he takes exceedingly difficult attempts but he's never quite been just that automatic guy. It's really more about being able to get the shots off, which is a different kind of skill. But no, I, I would say that he's not quite in that group for me. Um, but obviously, shooter has a number of different connotations um, or, or a lot of different definitions. I, by some, you could say yes, because his volume is that high. But you, you got to be over 40% from three to me to get into that discussion. Question from Scott Kennedy. I, I will answer it solely for myself because this is a deeply personal question. Um, would you like to work for an NBA organization at some point down the road? Obviously, never say never. Anybody who knows my approach to anything knows that's that's how I handle things. I approach each opportunity as it comes. But at the current point, and yeah, I'm 35. There are a lot of things that can change. But I am far happier doing what we do now and like the overall workflow of Dunked On and, and writing and, 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 and the live show when we have things to live show about. All, all that, that I, there are positions within an NBA organization that I would take over that. However, I would never be offered those positions. So if somebody wants to make a David Kahn style offer for me, then, then yeah, I'll listen. But I don't think that's coming. So the answer is functionally no. Is that a David Kahn style offer, meaning like only David Kahn would make that offer or an offer for you to be there, David Kahn? <laughs> Both. Either is fine. <laughs> uh, for me, I... I talked about this before, but nah, it would have to be uh, probably an unrealistically good offer. And I don't know. I, I mean, the, there is a little bit of the those who can't do teach or in this case commentate aspect where you know it does feel like we're just still doing this in a fantasy sort of realm. Yeah, but for, I also don't have to work like 120 hour weeks all the time and like uh, travel constantly and be away from a potential family and shit like that. A quick note on that. For those who, who either have or have not read uh, Ethan Sherwood Strauss's The Victory Machine, he gets into this a little bit about the amount of work it takes. Like he does a chapter on Bob Myers. The amount of work and mental stress that it takes to do that job well is just, it's scary. You know, it's like, you know, it's how much is your, how much is your sanity worth? And, uh, and, and I mean, I can take a lot, you know, like that's, I've at various moments in my life, I've worked incredibly hard and taken in a lot of stress, but that was in many ways to like get to this point. Now to leave this to go to that would be a very, it would take something great. Okay, one more here. How differently would you view LeBron if there were no conferences, so he only reached the finals four to five times instead of eight straight? Well, it's not clear necessarily that he would have only reached the finals four to five times even if things were better distributed. I mean, there, there are a few, I would say the only LeBron team that to me clearly wouldn't have made it without conferences was the 2018 team. I think the rest of them were very, very serious contenders. You'd imagine maybe one or two of them might've, might've fallen short. So, you know, the four to five times, that's not a, a crazy one. I hopefully wouldn't view him much differently. If he had won fewer championships as a result of that, uh, then perhaps I might see it, but I don't think he would have necessarily won fewer championships. And so I, I, I try not to focus too much. I focus on playoff performance for individuals, but I try not to focus on what the eventual result of the series was too much. So I don't think I would view him that differently personally. I don't think I would, but I do think that the some of the popular narratives would be different because we just see how that happens. Are you going to do one more here before we go? Yeah, I'll do one more. Um, from Todd R. Foley, how have your evaluations gotten better since starting the podcast? Watching, I mean, I watched a lot 
lot of basketball before we started. That's part of how you and I became friends. But when it's your job to be like an expert and to talk about it as much as we do publicly and have to be accountable on that, I think it's gotten better just that I have a much stronger sense of what NBA basketball is and where it's going and being able to, so that's evaluating NBA players, but also evaluating college players in that prism. It's something uh, Sam Vicini and I actually talked about on Real Jam Radio. So I think that element has gotten better and I've gotten a lot more confident when I deviate from conventional wisdom. There were times when I was earlier in my draft, you know, stuff like Anthony Bennett is an example of this. There are a few other guys where I felt strongly one way or the other, but I couched it because I didn't want to be that far off. And now it's like, if I see really big warning signs, there's probably a reason why. And I'm I'm more comfortable saying that publicly too. All right, well, that will do it for today. If you're also looking for so, some more content, Hollinger and I have done a, a fun series ranking the greatest individual seasons of all time on our last two pods. So please check those out and we'll talk to you all to finish out the week tomorrow night. Till then.